And hello there, and welcome to the DeMarco Polo Show on 88.9 KUCI-FM. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, and we're on the web at KUCI.org and iTunes College Radio. Today is Monday, September 10th, 2012, and I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and the DeMarco Polo Show is all about undiscovered places and spicy, sometimes shocking discoveries. And today we have a local discovery who's written a somewhat shocking book. She's Kathleen Sharp, and her new book is Blood Medicine, Blowing the Whistle on One of the Deadliest Prescription Drugs Ever, published by Plume. And if you have any questions as we go along for Kathleen Sharp, you can text me, text the question to 949-337-2752. Kathleen Sharp is a journalist and author of four acclaimed nonfiction books. She's written for the New York Times Magazine, Parade, Elle, Playboy, and Fortune, and has produced segments for National Public Radio's Morning Edition. She's appeared and consulted on film documentaries for Turner Classic Movies, The Biography Channel, and Bravo. Kathleen has won awards, including a first-place prize for investigative reporting from the Society of Professional Journalists, an economic fellowship to study at the Graduate School of Business at the University of Washington, and a healthcare fellowship from the University of Southern California's Annenberg School for Communication. She's a runner, and she lives in Santa Barbara with her family. And again, she's here to talk about her new book, and uh, we'll bring her right on. Hey, Kathleen. Hey, Barbara. Hi. Let's start by uh, having you talk a bit about blood medicine and what brought the book about. Well, blood medicine is the true story of some ordinary people going to extraordinary lengths to blow the whistle on a $30 billion Medicare fraud. And uh, it was a story about a great salesman by the name of Mark Duxbury who worked for Johnson & Johnson. Now, when he started calling me back in 2004, I was really reluctant to do this story. I mean, why would I want to go up against a $164 billion company like J&J? I just couldn't believe the things that he was telling me. But Mark was such an affable guy, you know, a great salesman calling me every now and then. And at one point I realized, wow, you know, this is a great opportunity to get inside a story, a healthcare story that's suddenly exploding into national significance. And that was one of fraud. So, so he called you, and what happened next? I mean, did you did you have to pick around and see what was going on to see if if the story had legs, or did you know it already did, or how, what happened? Well, he was calling me probably every three months or so for two years, so it was kind of mm-hmm. a long courtship. Mm-hmm. And uh, my resistance was stemmed from the fact that a I didn't know much about it, the pharmaceutical industry at all. And two, as I mentioned, it was kind of scary to uh, to get into this very secretive world, you know, where, I don't know, half of us Americans are sort of held hostage to by the devices and the pills that were prescribed. But what really turned the tables for me is sort of when the FDA in 2007 had this huge public meeting in which they um, confessed that this drug, which is known as EPO, it has several different brand names, which we can go over. But this drug, which the government was spending something like $10 billion a year reimbursing dialysis and cancer patients, they finally admitted that it was such a deadly drug, it was killing 17% of all the patients. 
and that they couldn't find any redeeming value to this drug, especially since Medicare had paid or was paying close to $60 billion over the 20 years. So that's when I realized, aha, here's an incredible story, and I get to tell it through the eyes of Mark Duxbury and his best friend, Dean McClellan. So then in terms of researching and writing, did you, do you start writing right away? Do you do initial research and start writing? Do you spend, give yourself a period of time where you're going to research and, and gather all that you can and, and start writing and continue to research? Or how does that work? Well, you definitely have to research these kinds of things. And I like to say that I write um, nonfiction novels. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that you really have to get into the shoes of the people who are the protagonists and the antagonists. And so I had to kind of retrace their steps beginning in the early 1990s when they became really eager um, salesmen for Procrit, which is the first biotech blockbuster. And I had to go back to the hotel rooms that they were in for their big, lavish banquets. And I had to go back to the places in the Southwest where um, Dean was one of the salesmen, and even the Northwest, where Mark operated. So it wasn't just getting the facts down and all the very complicated medical and financial information that goes into a pharma fraud. It was also setting you know, the scenes and getting the colors right and the seasons and, and knowing whether there was a full moon on the night that uh, Dean decided to join his friend. So I guess to answer your question, yes, there was an awful lot of research at first. You know, I kind of laid the foundation for all the the factual fraud, and then as I wrote the story, I would pick key scenes and then continue to research to make sure the colors and the sounds and everything was right. So, do you consider yourself an immersion journalist? I've been curious about that. An emerging journalist? Um, immersion, where you'll put yourself into into the scene or into the story, but... but um, you know, the people you're writing about don't necessarily know what you're doing because you're kind of immersed in the story. Well, I consider myself a really great storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I think to do that, you do have to immerse yourself in not just the story, but you have to sort of melt into the skin of your sources. And in this case, I was very upfront with my sources, telling them that, you know, I'm going to have to live with you and your family, you know, for weeks, and you're going to grow really annoyed with me for all the questions that I asked. And I was, you know, particularly blessed in this case in that I had four very strong characters who pretty much gave me carte blanche into their lives, as did their wives and their children. And, and that's what these stories take. And, you know, whether you call it literary journalism or narrative nonfiction or immersion journalism, I just love to tell a good mm. yarn. Mm-hmm. You're listening to the DeMarco Polo Show, and I'm with Kathleen Sharp, and her new book is Blood Medicine. Were you ever worried anywhere <laughs> along the line? I mean, you're dealing with this, you know, zillion-dollar industry and exposing um, something they, I'm sure, don't want to have exposed. Do, do you worry when you're involved in stories like this? Well, in this case, you know, I went to Johnson & Johnson several times, and we have to step back a little bit and remember that this is the company who makes No More Tears baby shampoo, mm-hmm. you know, Band-Aids for all of our boo-boos. I mean, this is a company that cares. And early on, I figured, you know, surely J&J would have an explanation for why they had allegedly marketed this drug illegally for 20 years, a drug that actually turned out was killing people um, instead of 
I should probably explain what the drug does, which is that it's an anti-anemia drug. And it's supposed to multiply your red blood cells, but what it also does is multiply your cancer cells. Mm. So if you're a chemotherapy patient and you're hoping to live you know, and beat cancer, you're actually going to die faster on this drug. Our chances are very high, you will. So um, I went to J&J and to their attorneys and to their PR people and probably asked them a dozen times for their help in shaping this book. And at one point, I realized, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm just getting a stone wall, a constant no. Um, I'm going to go and tell the story as I see it. And that was from the point of view of Mark. Hmm. Um, I'd love to hear you read at this point, and uh, I'm sure our listeners would too, to really kind of get a taste of the book, of the writing, and, and the story you're telling. Would you do that? Sure. I'm going to pick a section that's actually in the beginning of the book, and it illustrates sort of the human cost of this multi-billion dollar drug. Okay. In the moments before she became a widow, veiled in blood, Sharon Lennox was happier than she'd been in ages. Her 54-year-old husband, Jim, had just returned home from the hospital where he'd spent the night receiving infusions of minerals. After enduring months of toxic cancer treatments, the six-foot-tall man had become so dehydrated he'd required immediate medical attention. And so now, on this mild winter evening in January 2008, a week after Jim's birthday, Sharon was standing at the kitchen sink, washing dessert plates and soapy water and listening to her high school sweetheart patter on about their future together. Earlier in the evening, their five adult children, 14 grandchildren, and assorted relatives had gathered at their modest home to celebrate Jim's homecoming. About 50 of them had squeezed inside the family room to eat cake, drink soda, and talk politics. Jim was now resting on the couch while his wife cleaned up. And frail but effusive, he was elated at the prospect of living long enough to watch his grandkids grow up. Remember when we beat cancer the first time, honey? He asked his wife. In 1998, they had learned that the disease was ravaging Jim's left lung. In a bid for life, he'd undergone surgery to remove part of his tumor-riddled organ. The operation had scared him so much that he had quit smoking and for nearly a decade had lived cancer-free. Then in April 2007, the doctors found two new lung nodules inside his body. Sharon had taken a leave from her job delivering mail to shuttle her husband to doctor's appointments and chemotherapy sessions. By August 2007, Jim was showing significant improvement, according to one report. Still, the oncologist had warned Sharon that her husband would probably live only six months, and she had accepted that, but not Jim. We're going to beat this cancer again, honey, he said, his voice deep and steady, and Sharon just smiled. She stood at the sink, her hands troweling the soapy basin for stray utensils. She retrieved a dish, sponged it off, and admired how her solitaire wedding ring still sparkled. And suddenly, Jim fell silent. Sharon turned back to look at him and saw thick, dark blood oozing from his mouth. At first, she didn't understand. Jim coughed, and he struggled to breathe while Sharon waited for him to speak. But no words came out. Then Jim scooted to the edge of the couch, his eyes pleading for help. Sharon dropped the dish, reached for the phone, and dialed 911. The emergency dispatch operator asked Sharon some questions, but by then blood was spurting out of his mouth and nose, thick rivulets dripping down his chin. My husband is bleeding and he can't talk, she screamed. 
Jim was now coughing up pieces of tumor and lung, according to a report filed later by the Arendelle County Police Department. Apparently, some of his tumor was lodged in his throat, choking him. Jim's eyes were bulging, and he tried desperately to breathe as blood poured down his chest. He grew so agitated that Sharon prayed for him to pass out, and mercifully, he did. Every time Sharon breathed into her husband's mouth, administering CPR, his warm blood gushed back into hers. And when she pushed on Jim's chest, more blood spurted from his nose, and in no time, her face and her white T-shirt were soaked in crystal, and her long, ash-brown hair was matted with clumps of red matter. When the paramedics finally burst through the door, they found blood dripping from the walls and pooling on the floor. Sharon looked up from her husband's body, and the rescuers took over, measuring his vital signs. When Jim's son-in-law finally rushed into the room, ready to assist, he froze in horror. There lay his children's grandfather, a tube protruding from his gaping mouth, his death-dulled eyes wide open his head encircled by a halo of blood with sputum and malignant growth encircling him. Mm. Thank you so much. Uh, That was Kathleen Sharp, a Santa Barbara author, reading from Blood Medicine, blowing the whistle on one of the deadliest prescription drugs ever published by Plume. So uh, how long, well, a couple of things. They're sort of part of the same question, and and I'm curious how long it, it... took you to write the book and also living in this world I mean you had to uncover grisly deaths grisly um, I don't know histories of people and, and and what they went through with this drug how do you do that and um, not become sort of subsumed by it you know and and Remain cheerful for your family and, you know, know, go on and have your life. Well, you know, that is difficult, but one of the things that I found so inspiring was, you know, Sharon Lennox. I met her at the FDA meeting, um, and she was just on fire to tell the world about these drugs and to try and prevent other people from losing their husbands and loved ones. You know, Mark Duxbury and uh, his attorney, Jan Schlickman, who some of your readers may remember from A Civil Action, another great book, an Oscar-nominated film, um, they were on fire. They're crusaders. You know, there are so many people who are out there, kind of like unsung heroes, doing the best they can to right the wrongs that we see. And, you know, by encountering these people and listening to their stories and watching them in action, I couldn't help but just be fueled you know, even higher to to try and finish this book and deliver it. I'll also say that I did have some support in the way of Vanity Fair had assigned a story on this, um, which was great. And um, 60 Minutes had also for a while assigned a story before then changing its mind and and killing it. So when you have... Why did they kill it? Well, I'm not sure. This was right around the time of the crash in mm-hmm. 2008. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, there's a lot to be said for all the pharmaceutical advertising mm. that we see on television. Sure. Um, so, um, and to be fair, you know, there, there are a lot of magazines and TV shows are going through tough times as media changes. But um, I'm just so delighted when I see the renaissance that I see happening in nonfiction, literary nonfiction, 
So um, that kind of fuels you even more to deliver the best story in the most riveting way you can. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how you got involved in narrative nonfiction and how you how it became sort of your focus of um, one of your main focuses actually of your writing career. Well. It started when I was four years old, <laughs> and my mother put me on the floor to play, and there were magazines, these pretty glossy, you know, um, pieces of paper that had beautiful stories uh, and wonderful pictures, and that's when I decided to write. And as I grew older, I realized that Mark Twain, um, or even Joan Didion, had all, you know, had this dream to be novelists, but had started out as reporters. And, you know, I had a great education with some of the great newspapers, whether it was the L.A. Times or the Boston Globe, writing for them. So um, I've always kind of, to me, I, I love fiction and I love to read it, but there's nothing like a great story that happens to be true that's written in a fictional, you know, with all the fictional techniques to, to really elevate the art to another level, or that's sort of what I've fallen in love with. Mm-hmm. So then voice... Uh, and reading your book, I, I can see that that's important to you. And voice is different, I think, for nonfiction than it is for fiction. And at the same time, um, it's not different at all. I mean, good good nonfiction has a strong voice, and a, and you know who's writing the book. Uh, it, it sounds different. The voice sounds different from another book you might pick up. Can you, well, can you talk of, about that? Yeah, I kind of disagree. And if you, you know, when you get into this book, um, you'll see why, because um, it's not done in the traditional journalism way. It, it really does take a point of view, and it, it could be fiction. In fact, many people were astounded that it wasn't. Uh, the first edition um, had no footnotes, and later on we did add them just to show people that, yes, all of this was meticulously reported, even though it seems like, you know, a great novel. And when I read um, at UC Irvine on October 12th, I'm really eager to uh, sort of get the feedback from the audience there because it's such a great um, campus for literary writing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. So it would be interesting to see, you know, the feedback there. Actually, I was saying that. I I think your book and, and, you know, the best narrative nonfiction books do have a singular voice and, you know, like fiction. You know, I I don't think uh, I don't I, I think when books are, are merely kind of putting forth information, there's nothing really to differentiate um, them from one another. Right, and we yeah. see so many nonfiction books that take the point of view of a corporate executive, mm-hmm. whether it's a banker or um, an official in government. So why not take the point of view of a common everyday person who's right. you know experiencing an amazing journey? Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned earlier all the advertising on networks for drugs, and it's amazing how how much there is. And then, of course, at, at the end of um, so many ads, the uh, the announcer, whoever's been paid to read the ad, um, speaks very quickly and talks about the side effects. Right, sort of like um, cover cover yourself. Right? Oh my gosh! Yes, and you know this is one reason why America, the U.S. healthcare system, has a seven hundred and fifty billion dollar fraud problem, and that's an annual figure. Um, what we're depending on now is not scientific studies and not a doctor to tell us what he or she thinks about the drug, but we're depending on thirty second commercials that are produced in the most lush and seductive way. Mm-hmm. And who wouldn't want to run faster, feel better, be happier? 
But I think us Americans too often look for the quick fix when really uh, to become all those things takes a little bit of soul-searching and maybe some profound changes in our lifestyle. But we've gotten away from that. Mm. Yeah, and those sheets that accompany uh, prescriptions, too. I mean, whoever reads those, you know, it's like the list of, of side effects. I mean, it's like, oh, forget it, you know, put it in the cabinet. Right, and in this case with uh, Procrit, which is also known as Epigen and Aranesp, the patient never, ever saw those warnings because the drug was administered uh, in a shot inside the doctor's office. Mm. So you never, you didn't have an idea or clue that it could give you a heart attack or uh, blood clots. You didn't know that 17% of all patients were dying from this. And to me, that was really a travesty in this whole tale, that patients were the last to know about the high risks for a drug that never claimed to cure anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, very cheerful. Um. <laughs> yeah, but again, it was just, you know, very inspiring to see what these men endured for 10 mm-hmm. years and still are because the case, the whistleblowing case that they filed in U.S. District Court is still slowly moving forward. And what you find is that so many of our judges have almost a bias against the working person or the patient or the average everyday person, and they're more likely, much more likely, to rule in favor of the corporation. Um, I really didn't want to believe that, but the evidence has been almost overwhelming. And when you talk to people who specialize, attorneys who specialize in this kind of law, they'll um, verify that time and again. So we really need some systemic changes in not just medicine and in the doctor's offices, but also in our courts. Mm. Yeah, we sure do on so many levels, huh? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to take a real quick break, and when we return, we will have more Kathleen Sharp, author of Blood Medicine, so stay with us. We'll be right back. And hello again, and welcome back to the DeMarco Polo Show on 88.9 KUCI-FM, broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, and on the web at KUCI.org and iTunes College Radio. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. And we've been with Kathleen Sharp, a Santa Barbara author. Her book is Blood Medicine, and uh, we're going to bring her on in another minute. But first, some things going on in the area in the next few weeks, um, and in the next month, actually, a month, a little less than a month from now, Kathleen will be here at UCI, October 12th. Um, we'll ask her a bit about that when we bring her back on. But you can visit um, her website, bloodmedicine.info. And uh, her events are on there. The West Hollywood Book Fair is the last Sunday of this month in West Hollywood. Um, great panels and speakers and a, a very fun day. Uh, I go every year. This year I'm moderating a memoir panel. So um, come by and say hello. And the Pen on Fire Writers Salon will feature Susan Strait and Tatjana Soli next Tuesday here in Corona Del Mar, California. You can find more info at um, penonfire.com and k- click on the Writers Salon link and you will you will reach it. So let's bring Kathleen back on. Hello. Hello. So tell me a little bit more about your October 12th um, event here at UCI. Well, um, well, we'll be at the Crystal Cove Auditorium around 7 o'clock and, uh, you know, talking about the book and literary journalism and also um, explaining what's going on in movie world. Um, 
as you and I were talking, Barbara, mm-hmm. Hollywood has purchased the rights to the movie, and we have two great screenwriters um, working on the script, which I hear is you know just fantastic, according to studio executives. But New Regency has hired Adam Cooper and Bill Collage, who wrote the story for Tower Heist. Did you ever see Excellent. that movie? I haven't. Yeah, it's it's very funny with Eddie Murphy and Ben Stiller mm-hmm. and a, a caper in the old sort of 1940s style, sure. even though it has to do with 2010 bank fraud. So um, these guys did a great job, oh, not only in that, but have really put their heart and soul into um, blood medicine, too. So that'll be fun to chat about on uh, October 12th. That's that's really interesting. Um Tell me about that, that selling the, the rights and finding out it was going to become a movie. Because you've done, you've done a bunch of movie and TV work, yes? Well, I've done mostly uh, film documentaries. And mm-hmm. yes, my last book was Mr. and Mrs. Hollywood, which we're reissuing in January. And that was sort of the story of the Hollywood godfather, Lou Wasserman, mm-hmm. who was also the builder of Universal Studios. And um, as you know, our culture is just fascinated with Hollywood, which takes about as many subsidies as healthcare does. Mm-hmm. So that was a fun uh, tale. And a lot of the work that I've done has had to do with uh, commenting on moguls or how mogul management style affects America and, um, you know, other sorts of tales like that. But in this case, it was very unusual to, to deal with a feature film. And we had several offers from uh, various studios and TV uh, producers regarding the rights for blood medicine. And I can tell you that was very exciting, you know, not just for me, but for my sources who, you know, had been slaving for 10 years to get this story out in a big way. Um, And it was also very different because, although I'd worked on film documentaries before, in this case you were dealing with writers who were probably going to take a lot of license with the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Yet even so, you know, I had to introduce them to my sources and sort of hold their hands as they met them. And, of course, you have to give, you know, make sure that everyone is signed on the dotted line to agree to being interviewed and depicted in a film, even though we have no idea how it's going to turn out. So that was more work than I imagined. And um, lots of documents were used for the writing of the screenplay, and I imagine more will be used for the actual production. So it's going to be quite fascinating in the next year to uh, watch it unfold. Mm-hmm. Did you were you surprised that it was going to become a feature film as opposed to a documentary? No, not at all. Because mm-hmm. um, I wrote it in scene, mm-hmm. you know, and again we go back to that literary journalism where yes, yes, you know it really you know it comes alive. The colors, the dialogue was real. It was all taken from court documents, mm-hmm. but. You know, it was spoken by people who I could bounce stuff off of and I could describe their eyes and what they wore that day because one of the beauties uh, for me as a journalist, one of the beauties of this story is that one of my sources, Dean McClellan, who's this very quirky cowboy down in Tucson, Arizona, he happens to be a shutterbug in a rat pack. So he saved every single document and every sales material that he'd had over the 20 years that he sold this drug and not only that, he took pictures of all of the wonderful, you know, pharma sales banquets and all of the wild escapades that um, these drug reps go on when they meet every quarter. So there was a lot of color that I could glean from these actual, you know, pictures and documents. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about your um, how you deal with ideas because you've written for magazines as well as, of course, books. 
And when an idea, when you when you have an idea, I mean, I'm sure a lot of ideas kind of fall by the wayside, but when you have one that you want to do something with, how do you tell the difference between ideas for articles and ideas for books? Or do do your books start out as articles? Most of my books start out as articles, and mm-hmm. that's because I have to put potatoes and bread on the, mm-hmm. potato, on the table. Mm-hmm. So a lot of us journalists need that income before we can spend, you know, six months or so forming a book proposal. As you know, in fiction, you have to find time to carve out to write the book and then sell it to uh, New York Publishing. But in nonfiction, you have to come up with the proposal and two sample chapters and an outline, and that can be 50, 60, 70 pages. So it's a pretty intense document. And what you want to do is sell it for enough money that you can live off of for a few years. And uh, unless you're supplementing it with radio or TV or some other writing job, um, it's pretty challenging to do that. So they start as articles, and then do you find also that you just have too much information, too much data, too mm-hmm. much you want to say that, that an article isn't enough, or maybe it was enough so it doesn't become a book? Well, to me, I love books, mm-hmm. and the reason I love them is because they're huge canvases that you can say a whole lot of stuff on. And in magazine articles, you typically only have 3,000, or if you're lucky, you know, 8,000 words, and that's nothing, really. And um, as I said earlier, I really do think there's a renaissance going on in nonfiction books today, and that's where so many of us can tell these big, sweeping stories that are happening all around us nationwide. And you really cannot get that into a blog or onto the web mm-hmm. or, you know, onto a few pages in a glossy magazine. So books are like a, a perfect canvas for it. Yeah. Why do you think that's happening? I mean, it's sort of, you know, the, there's so many memoirs coming out as well. And, and you know, it, there's so much reality. And, I mean, on TV, there's reality TV. I mean, it's sort of like... Um, more than ever, it seems, nonfiction books, memoir, reality TV has really kind of taken hold. Well, I think memoirs, frankly, are sort of um, fading a little bit, and I think what I find going out you know, on tour around the country is that people are really hungry for true stories that affect all of us. You know, there's so little investigative reporting. There's so little slice-of-life journalism. Um, there's so little understanding about off. Um, off-the-books reporting or tax shelters or how it affects the average, you know, soccer mom. But I think a lot of people are hungry for the type of journalism that, you know, used to be the gold standard in America back in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, memoirs are beautiful, and I read them, but they typically tend to be, you know, very, by nature, very internal and almost self-involved. And I think the stories that I find to be very exciting, and I think a lot of readers do, are stories that touch them in a very personal way, whether it's in the bedroom, the boardroom, the pocketbook, or the, uh, you know, the kitchen table. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about vetting, because I'm guessing that lawyers really kind of went through your book, the publisher's lawyers, making sure of, you know as much as they could make sure of. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I have my own vetting system, and I bounced a lot of what I wrote off of my sources to make sure it was correct. And by that, I mean that I would read passages to them if I didn't feel, you know, that it was quite accurate or if I wanted their, um, you know, them to third and, and quadro check me. 
But I also went through, as you pointed out, the publisher's vetting system, and I was lucky enough to have the same lawyer that vets Carl Bernstein's book. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, that was a two-month, um, seven-day-a-week, you know, 12 hours a day process where we were on the phone for hours and hours. And, you know, he would ask me, well, you know, you describe this great scene in the doctor's office where a Samoan nurse is throwing um, the drug rep against the door saying, where is my EPO money? Medicare won't pay for this like you said they would. You know, they won't give me a 33% profit. And he says, where did you get this? So I'd have to go back to my files, find the document, Xerox it and, you know, FedEx it. And it was pretty arduous, but I have to say that um, we passed with flying colors, so that was a great feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of, um, not that a book like this would ever be self-published, but there's so many self-published books coming out. And one one aspect that's missed with self-published books is the vetting process, I think, as well as editing and, and some other things, too. But Yeah, I don't think a book like this could be self-published. Yeah. I don't think any... You know, paper binder or um, website would really take on that the legal um, liability for it. So that's another great reason why I'm so glad that I have magazines and TV um, entities and book publishers like Dutton or the Penguin Group behind me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when when we go to see doctors, we trust them to to you know do right by us to prescribe medication and and that that's going to work and so often doctors have just samples like candy that they're giving out um you know it's like well try this you don't you're kind of depressed how about this one and i mean what what's the deal i mean isn't that a conflict of interest um with with being you know a doctor and trying to help people you know handing out these samples well, I think you have a few things operating here. One is that this for-profit health system that we have really squeezes doctors and mm-hmm. their time. And whereas they might have had the luxury um, decades ago to read a, a medical journal and find out about the drug, now they don't. And they really do rely on drug reps. But the other more insidious problem is that um, these pharmaceutical companies um, almost bribe doctors and hospital executives and, and pharmacies by um, paying them fees to talk up the drug. They pay them to go to these beautiful resorts in Laguna Beach and enjoy a weekend free of whining and dining. Mm -hmm. Um, They buy them computer equipment or give them education grants, which is really just a a check. So even though doctors think they're above being bribed, those types of gifts really do sort of encourage them to prescribe to us drugs that maybe aren't the best in our best interest. And um, this is such a problem that um, there'll be a new law as part of Obamacare that by next March all the doctors do have to uh, reveal online which drug companies they're taking money from hmm. so that us patients can go online and put in, you know, Dr. Who, you know, and find out if he's taking $100,000 a year from... Uh, you know, XYZ drug company. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I haven't heard that one before. Yeah. I love it. And so that's something that we should all take advantage of. And in fact, I encourage readers and consumers when they go into their doctor and they're given one of these free boxes of candy, you know, to ask them, you know, gee, doc, are you taking any money from this company that just gave you the samples? Mm-hmm. 
and um, you'll be surprised at how they react. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll be surprised. <laughs> Often they are, but um, a lot of them will just retort truthfully, you know, no. Yeah, sure. Uh, we have a few minutes left with Kathleen Sharp. Her book is Blood Medicine, published by Plume. And um curious if you when you're working on a nonfiction book, if you read other stuff, are you are you reading fiction, poetry, reading other nonfiction similar to what you're working on, or or are you just keeping your palate clean so that all you can really focus on is your own stuff? What that's, you- that's a great question. During, you know, the the times when I was working seven days a week on deadline trying to finish this book, I would not read nonfiction. Instead, I would, you know, pull out a mystery, um, the, you know, especially old mysteries like um, Ross McDonald or mm-hmm. Margaret Millar or, uh, you know, so a few new ones like Tana French. But um, I really love to sort of lose myself in the rhythm, rhythm of a fictional world. And I think that kind of shows in, in this particular book and how I wrote it like a thriller or a suspense. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that wasn't on purpose, but it, you know, I, I needed a relief from all of this, these documentations and the court records and the scientific papers, and that's, you know, I found much solace and joy in fiction. Hmm. What about when something isn't working, or you you're just feeling like you're hitting a wall? What do you do? Do you, um, you know, just get up and leave the desk and go for a walk? Go just forget it for the day, or? Do you power through it using any sort of techniques? I mean, what, or do you just, are you one of the lucky ones and you never have to deal with that? Well, no, it's a great question, too. Sometimes I would force myself to understand a particular, you know, really tough concept. Uh, I have sources I can call up, but oftentimes the best uh, thing was for me to push myself away from the desk and go for a run out here on the cliffs, mm-hmm. you know, and really clear your head. Um, but that's what's so beautiful about deadlines. You know, they really force you to uh, move past the blocks and the confusion and the frustration and just to keep writing. And, you know, you asked me earlier about whether I overwrote or overreported, and I probably threw out, you know, half of what I had, but it, it gave me the confidence and the background to, to really get into these characters and to understand them so that the rest of the book made a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. What about chapter outline or any sort of, um, I don't know, synopsis or any kind of, I don't know, structure that you follow? Did you have that? Did you need that? And Yeah, I think it's real important mm-hmm. for nonfiction to have a skeleton to hang your story on. And what I found is that halfway through the writing process, you know, I didn't need that skeleton and it started to change. But at least I had a road map. You know, I knew where I was going to go. I knew the key scenes. And those really didn't change until towards the end of the book. And then this wonderful sort of magical thing occurred where it seemed like the book was writing itself. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's magic when that happens, huh? Oh, it really is. You yeah. know, and you had, I already had, you know, the, the factual stuff down. I already had sort of the uh, nuts and bolts of the fraud or the crime so that then it was... Uh, a matter of shaking it up and bringing it down to, um, you know, the the kind of heart and the guts and the the soul of the story and the people in it. Mm-hmm. When, did you find anything, um, any surprising things that you didn't expect? 
in in either researching the book or writing the book or where the book ended up the end where the ending ended up well there's a spoiler that i'm not going to mention here but it was very shocking uh the way the book ended and it, it you know just you know i cried for days mm-hmm. um and as, again i won't share that but there was something else sort of larger that affects all of us and that was to see the conflicts of interest that are in Washington, D.C., it was shocking to me to find out that the Attorney General during the Bush administration, Mm -hmm. the man who's in charge of all whistleblowing suits and who decides whether a suit goes forward and whether or not us taxpayers get money back for fraud, he actually had worked defending Johnson & Johnson um, many years ago. That was Michael Mukasey. And... um, Okay, we can accept that, but then when I found out that the Obama administration, the top lawman in the country, also worked defending Johnson & Johnson, and that man is Eric Holder, you know, that there's, you realize, oh my God, you know, the conflicts of interest are entangled and knotted many times over, and it's so blatant now that um, it's pretty tough to have any sort of um, trust in the integrity of our system. Mm-hmm. Well, that was that was sort of my next question in terms of trust, trust for the medical profession, trust for your doctors. Tr- you know, it's like you, you kind of need that when you um, see your doctor. And did this change for you? Did you come away going, oh, okay, so that's what's going on there? Well, I, I did, but I have to you know, confess that I've always been one of those people that have tried to stay away from prescription drugs. Mm-hmm. And I've also been very lucky genetically and environmentally. But when I look and realize, oh, my God, 150 million of us are on prescription drugs, and that's for sleeping aids. That includes, you know, minor depression. That includes diabetes or um, or any other sort of uh, ailment that probably could be helped by better living habits, that's when I really realize that it's up to us as parents and as grown-ups to kind of wean ourselves off of these uh, pharmaceutical products. Mm-hmm. Interesting. We are at the end of our time, and now I want to ask you just for advice for writers who are, are either considering an, a nonfiction book idea um, or are working on one or, and hoping to see it to its completion. Any advice for those people? Yes. I would say, you know, follow your heart, you know, find your passion. Don't let anybody tell you do not follow that story. I had many, many people trying to steer me away from this tale, and there was something about it that got under my skin and called to me. So that would be my number one uh, suggestion. But the second one is, you know, really make sure that your facts are accurate. You You have to build your story around on a strong foundation, and once you do that, then you can play with the writing and sort of the lyrical uh, style that you want to impose upon it. But the facts are tantamount because you want people to trust you. Mm, that's right. That's right. Thank you so much, Kathleen, for uh, for coming on the show. It's a short notice. It's been a delight. Oh, I've loved it, Barbara. Thank you. You're welcome. That was Kathleen Sharp, and her book again is Blood Medicine, published by Plume. And uh, she's going to be here at UCI on October 12th. You can find more at her website, bloodmedicine.info. And I'm sure if you're here on the campus, you will uh, be able to find it, find that info here at UCI as well. 
going to leave you now, and um, I'll be back on Wednesday with my other show. So if you're a writer, reader, you like shows like this, tune in Wednesday morning at 9, and uh, I'll be having Laura Lippman on, who's a crime writer, and um, kind of dealing with some interesting issues in her new novel, and, uh, when, and when she was good. So, I think that's it. You have been listening to the DeMarco Polo Show on 88.9 KUCI-FM, broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, and on the web at KUCI.org. Have a great week, and uh, I'll be back with you soon.